0: I don't know whether any of you have heard of Faust, uh, but the idea of doing a deal with the devil sort of came into Western culture through a story about this guy called Faust. Uh, he was a well-to-do legend, uh, German man, um, who got sort of jaded with life. And he's walking down a road one day, and at the crossroads, he meets the devil. And the devil offers him unlimited pleasure if he'll sell his soul to the devil. And Faust... Takes the deal, he makes a pact with the devil. Short-term gain, maybe, for long-term pain. And it's one of those sort of cautionary tales from, uh, from literature, from sometimes from history. He sold his soul for a few short years of ill-gotten pleasure. And that idea has sort of passed into folklore. According to Wikipedia, uh, there are more than 40 movies where the sort of Faustian pact with the devil features significantly in the storyline. Think things like um, uh, Phantom of the Opera, or Bedazzled, uh, or Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? You've seen those movies? Yeah, That they play on that same idea, this Faustian pact. And it, I think it connects with us because it's sort of a scary thought. That maybe me, maybe given the right circumstances, I could do a pact with evil. I, I could go for some short-term pleasure and do some sort of terrible evil to get what I want. But for people who believe in the devil like I do, who believe in hell like I do, it's not just a cautionary tale, it's a very, very scary tale. And Revelation 17 and 18, that Ed just read for us, are about people who make a pact with the devil. Vast hordes of humanity, many of them unaware of their doing it, and even followers of Jesus could easily follow in their footsteps. It's a cautionary passage for us today. Uh, What we're going to do is do a quick overview of the two chapters, just see what's there, uh, and then ask, what does it mean? But before that, let's think about the context. The book of Revelation is a book that reveals what we normally can't see with our eyes. I can see the lecture theatre, I can see you, but I can't see God. In Revelation 4 and 5, John is shown what's true in heaven. Uh, He sees the creator on the throne Ruling the world, it's not out of control, it's not ha- haphazard and chaotic. And he sees the lamb who takes the scroll to open it, the will and purpose of God for humanity, for this planet, uh, unravelled and put into effect by the lamb who was slain for us. And God's purposes for the world have this cycle of three, the, the seals, the seven, the trumpets, the bowls, with some things in between. We saw uh, some of that last week, particularly the, the chapter six, 15, 16, about the bowls. Um, in chapters 12 to 14, John uh, is introduced to what's behind world history at one level, which is the dragon, this scarlet uh, beast that is identified as Satan. And he has two allies, beast one, that represents political and military power, beast two, that is false religion, that deceive people. And together they deceive the world. We see too the suffering and security of God's people, those loyal to Jesus. And John's now shown in 17 and 18 an important detail about one of the principal characters in 15 and 16, a woman, a prostitute. So we're told in 17, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of wrath came and said to me, come, I'll show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters with her, the kings of the earth committed adultery. The inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. She sees this prostitute, but before we get details about her, our attention is drawn to a beast. She's sitting on a scarlet beast that's covered uh, um, with, with names and it's got seven heads and ten horns, which is hard to imagine, isn't it? Where do you put ten horns on seven heads? They've got to sort of fit somewhere. It's... But, but you, you to take the they're symbolic more than imaginary at this point. The woman's dressed in purple and scarlet, glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She's sort of slinky, sexy, but she's more gaudy and opulent. We know that from chapter 13, this beast represents political power, domination with, the, with military might. And this beast is a puppet of the dragon, of Satan himself. And the woman rides atop the beast. That is, the beast is in league with Satan. The woman uh, gets her power from him. The woman might be a prostitute, but she slept her way to power. And she's revealed as Babylon the Great. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes, and of the abominations of the earth. I'm sure she saw she was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. She's a woman, but she's also a city, a great city. I think for many of us, cities are sort of ambiguous places. If you come from the country, you probably hate the city, but many of us are attracted to the city because there's culture, there's wealth, there's beauty, there's energy, there's excitement, but there's also decadence and corruption and degradation it's a center of power and where there's power there's there's corruption and this city has as its essence prostitution and abomination it's drunk with the blood of the saints she's a persecutor of god's people and then we hear more about the beast we're introduced to this beast and it's a complex series of details. It's got seven heads that represent seven hills that are seven kings and your mind spinning and you find out the seven kings all rule for a while and then there's an eighth king which is the beast and it rules too and then the ten horns are ten kings and it all gets fairly complicated. But there's a strange twist towards the end. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute... The prostitute's sitting on them, but they'll turn on the prostitute and bring her to ruin what formerly was an alliance, a mutually agreeable alliance, now turns sour and the beast kills the prostitute. But that was exactly as God had planned. Now, the reason John is shown this prostitute is not so he can appreciate her attractions, but to show him her ruin, her punishment, The path to get there may be complex, but the end is the critical detail. It ends in utter ruin. And so what he's told about in chapter 17, he sees in action in chapter 18. I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority and earth was illuminated. And he cries out, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. John's just seen Babylon, not fallen, but this angel announces the future of Babylon. It will fall, like the prophets of the Old Testament announced beforehand what's going to happen, as if it's already happened. That's what this angel does. She's seduced kings, She slept with nations, she's the star attraction at the brothel, attracted all sorts of shady characters and the money, she's been a vortex for evil, a sort of cesspool of corruption, people drawn in by the promise of wealth and fun. But now she is fallen, crushed, humiliated, destroyed and if you follow in your outline you'll see in verses 4 to 8 that John is told that she had a coming her sins verse 5 are piled up to heaven and God has remembered her give back to her as she has given pay her back double for what she's done pour her a double portion from her own cup give her as much torment and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself at the expense of others Her sins are piled up to heaven, they're a stench in God's nostril, and now she gets what she deserves, as much torment as the luxury she's extracted. She boasts about her royalty and her security. She'll never mourn, but she will mourn. God will cause her to do it. And then in verses 9 to 20, we're told of the effect on those around her, those who've, uh, who've been part of her alliance. Those who slept with her and aligned themselves with her. Verse 9, the kings of the earth, who committed adultery with her and shared in her luxury, see the smoke of her burning. They will weep and mourn, terrified at her torment. torment, They'll say, woe, woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon. In one hour, just a a fraction of time, your doom has come. And then it, it goes wider to the business tycoons. Verse 11, the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her Because no one buys their cargoes anymore. All sorts of cargoes they've been selling, they've been uh, piggybacking on the back of this woman and her power and her political influence. They've been making mint out of it. But now, when she falls, their businesses collapse. Nothing is left. And so they mourn. They've made their fortunes by smoozing up to her. While, While she was strong, they partied, but now they are ruined. They sold their soul to Babylon. And it's coming home to roost. Verse seventeen: the transport moguls, every sea captain, all who travelled by ship, sailors, all who made their living on the sea, they not st- stand off because now there's no more cargo. All world trade has collapsed, and their opportunity to get on the back, uh, get on uh, her back, and and become rich themselves, has fallen down. Uh, we see this symbiotic relationship. The woman, the beast, and then the kings, the merchants, the the business dealers, the transport moguls of the world, They're, they're all in it together, and when one falls, they all fall. They've had a pact of loyalty and collusion and corruption, but when the city falls, they're all devastated. The party's over. With the ruin of Babylon, they're ruined because they've attached their destiny to Babylon. And the ruin of Babylon comes so fast, it's unexpected. There's no time to cash in their their shares, to untangle their business arrangements, to diversify their markets. And in verse 21, we see the end of it. A mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone, must have been a strong uh, angel, threw it into the sea and said, with such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. I'm sure you've dreamed of throwing a boulder into the sea, haven't you? You'd love to be able to pick it up and just chuck it in and that enormous splash. And what happens to the boulder? Glug, glug, glug. It's never going to come up, is it? It's lost forever. And so will Babylon be. Never again. The corruption and exploitation, the violence and persecution are over forever. Well, John's just shown us the punishment of the great prostitute. She she may look attractive in her seductive power, but God will throw her down. But what does it all mean? Well, let's think about this prostitute who's a woman and a city, Babylon the Great. We see her end, but who is she? What is she? The book of Revelation uses sort of cryptic symbolism, a little bit like our political cartoons do. If you're a connoisseur of political cartoons, you recognise different symbols. You know when you see an eagle, which country's that? US. You see a bear. Which country is that? Russia. Russia. Yes, you you know, don't you? They're they're pictures that if you... You might not be interested in political cartoons and may not know that at all, but those who know, uh, you know. Well, what's the key to understanding this? Is it political cartoons in the Australian? No, it's the Old Testament. That's where the images come from. And so you need to know something of the Old Testament and I've had a chance to read up and explore some commentaries, so if you don't know, that's okay, I can tell you some of it. Babylon the Great. When does Babylon first appear <clears throat> in the scriptures? Well, you may know it as Babel. Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. It's one of the climaxes of human rebellion against God. As humans cooperate together. They all gather on the, the plain of Shinar at the place called Babel to build a tower to heaven, to make a name for, them, for themselves. That is, to try and create heaven on earth without God through their cooperation and industry, through their technology and their multi, multinational uh, work together. They try and build a tower that reaches to heaven so that humanity can say to God, get lost. We can do this ourselves. And God says no. And he confuses their language so they can no longer cooperate like they could before. And Babylon sort of disappears from human history prominence for a while. But then in the 7th century BC, it suddenly rises to worldwide prominence, the great Babylonian Empire, the wealthiest, the biggest, the strongest and mightiest empire the world had seen to that point. It was powerful and wealthy, it was idolatrous and sophisticated. It was cruel and rapacious. In Babylon, they built what became one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the hanging gardens of Babylon. Uh, we've dug up ruins of it, and it's very impressive. And the civilization it created uh, was something to be behold. And in that world, when it was in power, if you wanted to survive, especially if you wanted to prosper, you had to fall in with Babylon. Israel at one stage didn't. <laughs> they did for a while and then they pushed back against Babylon and they got crushed. And all, their, uh, uh, um, all, all the important people were carted off into exile in Babylon. And when they're that great power, they come under the scrutiny of God's prophets in places like Isaiah 13, 14, 47, Jeremiah 50, a number of other places, who prophesy about Babylon's arrogance and cruelty. Isaiah says Babylon you said in your heart I'll ascend to heaven I'll raise my throne above the stars of God I'll sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain does that ring any bells that's the tower of Babel again isn't it I will ascend above the tops of the clouds I'll make myself like the most high but you are brought down to the grave to the depths of the pit the prophets recognised the the arrogance and the cruelty and the evil that Babylon gathered around herself. And they predicted that one day God would act to bring judgment. She seemed so dominant, she looked permanent. She'd be there forever. But at the very height of her powers, she fell in one night. By 39 BC, the Medes and Persians conquered Babylon, the city, and with it, the empire. And so to call someone Babylon is to evoke all those images A city that rules the world, the head of a powerful, powerful, unified civilization, full of wealth and luxury, generated by that power and cruelty, full of themselves, arrogant to the last. It looks like it's going to be eternal, it feels unassailable and permanent, you can't imagine the world without it, but it comes to a sudden and swift end. And John gives us a clue as to how his first readers were meant to read it. He says the seven um, heads are seven hills. And for anybody living in first century Mediterranean world, seven hills immediately would have, ah, I know what you're talking about. Because Rome, the empire that they lived under, was a city built on seven hills. Everybody would have got the illusion. And Rome was even more than Babylon, so intimidating in its power that it ruled the world as far as the eye could see and ships could sail, enticing in its wealth, seduced the peoples and nations and the kings to give her loyalty. If you bowed the knee to Rome, if you got into bed with Rome, you could succeed, you could flourish, but if you opposed Rome, you got crushed under her heel. You could share in her power and wealth, or you could have the opposite. And every world power has been like that. It really doesn't matter which period of history you, you pick. Pick the British Empire. Until about 30 years ago, most of us, especially because we came from, I came from British sort of stock, we thought the British Empire was great. Great Britain and, and her empire. But it was rapacious. It was corrupt. What they did in India and Africa, what they did to the Australian Aborigines was terrible. Amsterdam similarly. Belgium was far worse. Read the story of the Congo. It will make your stomach turn. Wherever an empire rises, through military might and financial muscle, wherever it dominates, then the choice is given to people. Do you suck up and fall in line and get into bed with? Do you take the opportunity to make your fortune by joining the oppressors? Or will you stay out and get crushed, or at least risk getting crushed, under the heel? There's Babylon, there's Rome, there's London, there's New York, there's Moscow. Perth? We're too small, aren't we? <laughs> we, don't, we have no uh, um, ambition to be that. And she sits on the beast. As we saw, we've met this beast back in Revelation 13. The beast represents political power. She's a puppet uh, he, the beast is the puppet of the dragon of a Satan. See many will just see a city skyscrapers and head offices for multinational companies and government uh, and the, the, the luxury of retail therapy that's on offer in a city. But this city sits on the beast, sits on Satan, in effect. Behind the glittering power is satanic power and influence. And so to cosy up to the city, to entangle yourself in its life and values, to be part of Babylon, is to buy into Satan is to sell your soul to the devil. To buy into that symbiotic relationship with power and wealth is to sell your soul to the devil. Now, some of the details I'm fuzzy on. I'm not sure what to do with the seven kings and the ten horns and the one that goes and comes and comes back again. The background, I think, is Daniel chapters 4 and 7, but I'll let you look that up yourself. But the main idea, I think, is pretty clear. The fate of Babylon the Great the world system that keeps rising and accruing power and luxury to itself, the system that defies God, is doomed. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. In an hour. Not gradual disintegration, but a swift end. And John is told to apply it in two ways. The first is in chapter 17, verse 9. It's a call for wisdom. John wants us to be wise, have a mind of wisdom. Now, Wisdom here isn't about nutting out some really complex problem. It's seeing the world properly. It's recognising the prostitute for who she is. She may look sexy and cuddly, but underneath she's a rapacious destroyer. And her end is coming. Her fate is sealed. So, if you know something's going to crash and burn, it sort of changes how you relate to it, doesn't it? I presume most of you are not thinking of buying real estate in Ukraine at the moment. Some of you are thinking of withdrawing all your shares in Twitter, seeing as Elon Musk has taken over. It requires wisdom to recognise that this is the world system that they lived in, that we live in. But what are we to do once we recognise that? Should we fight Babylon? Mount protests, militarise, vandalise it, launch cyber attacks against it. Now, the second bit of advice that John gives to us is in chapter 18, verse 4. I heard another voice say, come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins. You will not receive any of her plagues. Don't fight it. Don't try and bring it down. God's going to do that, but come out of it. But what does he mean by come out? Because John is writing to people who don't live in Rome physically. He's not saying, leave Rome, pack your bags, get out of Rome. It's more about where your heart is, who you belong to, where your loyalty is. Come out of her. Don't share her evil now, lest you go down with her then. How do you do that? Well, the Bible gives us some very helpful examples. Remember Babylon, oh, sorry, Daniel, who was in Babylon. He was one of the exiles and what was offered to him was wealth and power and influence beyond imagination. He was selected to be one of the rulers of the kingdom of Babylon, the greatest kingdom of the world. And he did the job. He took the job, but he did it very carefully. And what he did carefully became his Achilles heel because he maintained his loyalty to God above, far beyond his loyalty to Babylon. And when Babylon said, don't pray to any god except uh, Nebuchadnezzar, except the emperor, he continued to, uh, uh, to pray to the true and living God. He continued to hope, not in Babylon the city, but in the rebuilding of his city, God's city, Jerusalem. Got him into trouble. He didn't leave Babylon. He continued to work in Babylon, But his heart was not in Babylon. He had come out of Babylon. I'll give you two other examples. After I finished uni, I shared a house with a guy called Richard. Um, And Richard was a very clever guy, university medal in chemical engineering, got a job with one of the the multinational corporations in Australia that was going somewhere. He, He was not only clever academically, he was just very good and very conscientious. And about a year after he started working, after graduating, the boss of his boss of his boss of his boss called him into his office and said, Richard, we've worked out a career path for you. Next year we want you to move to Melbourne for two years with this particular job. Then you'll move to uh, Queensland and you'll become the manager of one of the sugar mills in Queensland. And then you'll move to Sydney as uh, as a regional manager. By the time you're 35, you'll probably be general manager of this multinational corporation. We will pay you commensurately. And we will offer you an almost zero-interest loan of as much money as you want to buy the house of your dreams. And Richard came home that night, and we sat around the dining room table, and he said, this is what's happened to me. What do you think I should do? There was four of us uh, sharing that house together. And as we talked about it, He started to realise that if he took that path, within five years he would belong to the company. All his friends would be in the company. All his contacts, all his influence. And he would have lots of influence. All his money would be tied up. He couldn't leave that company because of the the loans. He would sell his soul to the company. He decided not to take it. Went back the next day and said to his boss... Uh, Thank you very much, I'm so honoured, but no thanks. His boss couldn't believe it. He said, I would die for this opportunity. Let me tell you another story which you might know a bit of. I've only learnt it uh, from reading the internet, so the details might not be right. I may be doing the guy a disservice. But many of you have heard of Guy Sebastian, have you? He won the first Australian Idol competition, and flew to fame and success and the opportunity for money and wealth. It opened doors to to that sort of thing and and when he won he was a devout Christian. And the win and the public profile it gave him was just such an opportunity to put Jesus out there. But I think what happened was he soon realised that some of his Christian beliefs wouldn't play well in the world of pop music and media especially his views on homosexuality. And so, to quote him, he changed his mind. I think, I hope I'm wrong. He sold his soul to the devil. For the sake of fame and fortune, he gave up his loyalty to Jesus so that he could, make, he could be acceptable and find that route. He got into bed with Babylon. Come out. Come out. Recognise the power and wealth for what it is. It's seduction. I don't know if you've ever had anybody try to seduce you, prostitutes, or maybe at a, at a club and some guys come up and try to, uh, 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 to crack onto you. It's sort of attractive and, and, and exciting, but I hope you're, you're aware they're just trying to use you. They're offering something that you want, but at the same time, it's dangerous. And these chapters tell us that the most powerful attractive seduction is not sex, it's power and wealth. And friends, if you're at UWA, that is available to you, probably. I know you're not quite sure what's going to happen and who will offer you jobs, but who's going to offer the jobs that take you to be general manager of a multinational? Well, people who who recruit from UWA are those sort of people. Some of you will be in that situation. That's not the only way to sell your soul to the devil, but if the opportunities are there, people will come and offer them. It'll come knocking. In the next 20 years, many of you will be given those sort of opportunities to make your fortune for yourself at the cost of selling your soul to the devil. Come out. He isn't just saying, wait till then and refuse it. He's saying, come out now. Now decide that Babylon is not where you belong. You belong with the Lord Jesus. Loyalty to him will cost you because the power of the world will be against you. Others will be seduced. Let's not be seduced ourselves. Amen.